0: Part three, Chapters five through seven of Futility, a novel on Russian themes by William Gerhardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Chapter five. When the train arrived at Omsk, the new regime of Kolchak had been established. The Admiral was distinctly pleased with the change, for he no longer believed in granting the Russian people a constituent assembly because he had grounds for thinking that the russian people if given this opportunity would take advantage of it and elect a government other than that of kolchak and the admiral was rather fond of little kolchak whose interpretation of democracy was that of denying the people the choice of government until such time as by some vague mysterious but anyhow protracted system of education he hoped their choice would fall upon his own administration we lived in our train a or thereabouts from the station a thoroughly unwholesome place and the admiral diverted most of his time by throwing empty tobacco tins at the pigs that dwelt in the ditches around the train you have no conception what a pig really is he said till you see an omsk pig splendid said sir hugo splendid there she goes again, yelled the admiral, and hit an old big sow with a navy cut tobacco tin. Splendid effort, said Sir Hugo, splendid effort. I give damn hell roared General Bologevsky. Damn rotten pigs. But as usual, his threat remained an empty one. But while most of us were very much at sea as to why exactly we had arrived at Omsk, Nikolai Vasilievich seemed immune from doubt. Nikolai Vasilievich, suspicious of the punitive expedition, had arrived at the seat of the anti-Bolshevik administration to seek redress and compensation in regard to his gold mines. I think it was chiefly for my British uniform that Nikolai Vasilievich asked me to accompany him on his visit to the general at the general staff, before whom he was going to lay his case. I noticed that Nikolai Vasilievich had always had a curious habit of establishing some connection between his personal grievance and some powerful outside influence, as, for example, the general question of allied intervention, and he insisted that he and we and intervention were really all one affair, and that hence a favorable solution of his financial difficulties was all part and parcel of that scheme which aimed at the defeat of Bolshevism. We entered a large, dirty waiting-room, where crowds of petitioners awaited their turn with a patience that bordered on spiritual resignation. After the Russian manner, they all desired to see the headman personally, whose life was consequently spent in interviews. A nasty, dirty little woman with a nasty, dirty little child, pointing at me with a dirty finger, was saying to her howling offspring, in an attempt to pacify her next of kin. "'Is that your daddy? Is he? Is that your daddy?' The general was an elusive person, a wily man, a master in the art of compromise. He was the idol of the allies. He was one of those few who could so wangle things, so balance favours, as to please at once all the multitudinous allies, and even curry favour with a large majority of Russians.' His habitual procedure was this. If an ally asked him, for example, for the allotment of a certain building, he always promised without reserve. Then the Russian organization in possession of that building would at once cry out in protest, and he immediately assured them that they would be allowed to keep the building. The whole matter, he explained, was a mere misunderstanding. Then the Russian organization stayed— and when the ally came to take the building over, they referred the ally to the general. And when the ally came to him and asked for an explanation, the general, with a charming smile, would say, "'Well, you see, that building is not really suitable for your use. I will find you a better one.' Then the ally waited. "'He must have time,' the general said, and actually he played on time, on evolution. And in the meantime there was a coup d'etat, or the Russian organization went bankrupt, or the particular Allied representative who had been worrying him was replaced by another, with whom the general would begin again at the beginning, or the Allied troops were about to be withdrawn, or the city was recaptured by the Soviets, or there was a fire and the correspondence was buried in the flames. He was a man who had no use whatever for free will, and played entirely on predestination the general listened to nikolai vasilievich's emotional narrative in a friendly manner and smiling pleasantly he rose and shook hands as if to show that the interview was at an end saying you may rest assured that it will be quite all right call again one of these days nikolai vasilievich went out beaming well he said it seems settled i tendered my heartiest congratulations then one of these days we called upon the general a second time. Nikolai Vasilievich laid great stress on the dastardly action of the Czechs, that nation just then being out of court with the government at Omsk, but the general merely said, Wait till the supreme ruler returns from Perm. I can do nothing without the supreme ruler. Nikolai Vasilievich then waited for the return of the supreme ruler, and presently we called again. The general's manner, as he received us, was considerably less sunny than it had been on the two previous occasions. "'You have been here before,' he greeted Nikolai Vasilievich. "'You must have patience and wait.' "'Wait?' asked Nikolai Vasilievich in a tone of secret terror, the terror of a man who has been doing naught else all his life, and knew its meaning. "'Yes, I advise you to wait. Have patience.' "'How long?' asked Nikolai Vasilievich how do i know the general replied wait and you will see now was it that nikolai vasilievich had waited long enough and seen nothing was it that in the circumstances he thought it sounded too much like a mockery or was it the explosion of that brewing restlessness that he had gathered in the years of intermittent waiting the last puff of ineffectual remonstrance before his final sinking into hopeless resignation but suddenly nikolai vasilievich went wild i had never seen him in that state before he abused the general in immoderate terms he accused him first of turning honest people into bolsheviks then of being in the pay of moscow he threatened to lead a rebellion against the kolchak state nikolai vasilievich ceased to be a man and became an incarnation man having lost his patience, humanity gone wild in the waiting. He thundered forth at the adversary, and his ruined hopes were the woes of humankind. Then, coming to the end of his intellectual resources, but far from having yet exhausted his spiritual wrath, he made reference to the Day of Judgment. The door into the chancery flew open, and the chief of staff, the aide-de-camp, and the heads of various departments dashed upon the scene, wondering what on earth had happened. And shouting loudly, Nikolai Vasilievich hurled abuse upon the chief of staff, the aide-de-camp, and the heads of various departments. And then, in the waiting-room, he went for a stray admiral, a petitioner like himself, and hurled abuse at him as well. "'All right,' said the general at length. "'All right,' If you won't be reasonable, I shall have to resort to the recognized procedure. Guard! And he ordered them to take Nikolai Vasilievich away. Nikolai Vasilievich still raged and fluttered, and the guards came up to him with signs of deference and indecision. Come on, sir, they persuaded him. He really means it. And taking him, each under one arm, they dragged him out into the open. We walked back to the train. What those people will not realize, I took it up to humor him, is that you can't live on nothing. Waiting doesn't feed you, and waiting doesn't clothe you, and when you have a family. Of course one can borrow, said Nikolai Vasilievich. Yes, of course, I agreed. Fanny Ivanovna greeted him with, Well, Nikolai, is it all arranged? A fiendish look came on his face, as though he said, The hell it is! and all the more fiendish because he did not say it. She sighed conspicuously, and her sigh gave him a nervous shudder. A look of hate came into his steel-gray eyes. She even sighs offensively, he said to me, as though she meant to charge me with the necessity of doing so. Nikolai, she cried, don't let yourself go before strangers. What will Andrei Andreitch think of you? you know i am not to blame because the mines won't pay and you ought to remember that i advised you to sell them long ago and if you had listened to me then we shouldn't have been in this plight well well it's no use quarrelling now we've got to wait that's all the ironic fascination of the situation at this point proved irresistible there's an english proverb i supplied all things come to him who waits "hm," said nikolai vasilievich. "and there's another one, rome wasn't built in a day." "excellent proverbs," he said dryly. kniaz popped his head out from behind the paper like a mouse and added, "there's our own russian proverb too, the slower you drive, the farther you get." "you kniaz had better read your paper," retorted nikolai vasilievich acidly. "'What does it say in there?' I stood at the window of the stationary train and watched the sinking landscape dissolve in the gathering gloom about us. Why did the winter air seem so acutely strange, as if charged with something, a kind of tenderness, a warm, transfiguring love? Nikolai Vasilievich came to my side and watched, his hands in his trouser-pockets.' Pigs in the ditches, he brooded. Pigs in offices, everywhere. A town of pigs. That general. Oh, what a pig! Chapter 6 The affiliation of Eisenstein into our society was a tribute to his own unflagging perseverance. It so happened that, while in Vladivostok, the Admiral had been in urgent need of a dentist, and quite by accident he tumbled against Eisenstein, who had set up a practice there. The admiral, though he loathed all Jews, was yet favorably impressed by Eisenstein because on his first visit to him he heard Eisenstein engage in a vigorous cursing of his Chinese servant. He liked to see a man who knew how to put these people in their places, a man who knew how to assert his own authority. A man who did not talk about equality and such-like tosh, discordant with his sentiment. Utopia, socialism, and that sort of thing, you know, that has made the world, etc., etc. There was altogether too much Bolshevism abroad, and the vigorous action of the dentist with his chink appealed to him unspeakably. This clamoring for allowing men from below to come up to the top and not imposing individuals of the old governing class from above he said all damned well to talk like that but in the meantime is anarchy to be allowed to continue unchecked apparently so all right all right said eisenstein this seemed the only word he knew in english but it did not baffle him in the least indeed he preferred to converse in english by means of its continual solitary use to any reasonable conversation in russian and when the admiral spoke russian to him he still replied all right all right the admiral had found him an amazing dentist the admiral's teeth and dentistry seemed the subject he was least interested in of all he talked politics and finance at intervals strange men and women of a strong hebrew strain would run into the room and eisenstein leaving the admiral with his mouth wide open and cotton wool stuck under his tongue would exchange queries in a quick and agitated manner with these dark intruders the admiral would hear such phrases as what is the yen today how much is the dollar and if the admiral chanced to touch the question of finance eisenstein would pounce upon him with inquiries do you want dollars how many dollars or can i sell you francs or suddenly he would ask the admiral to recommend his being made a British subject. Where was the difficulty? He could always change his name Eisenstein to Ironstone, which, he believed, sounded jolly well in English. In a crisis he would suddenly drop his instruments on the floor and rely upon his naked hands, which, by the way, he never washed between his clients. He was always one of two things, either extremely optimistic, when he said that the most violent pain was nothing or very pessimistic when he said that nothing could be done to alleviate the pain sometimes he was extremely indolent and said that nothing was required to be done and all was well and sometimes violently enthusiastic for huge undertakings for the most drastic and sweeping reforms for extracting all the remaining teeth in the admiral's mouth and substituting gold all over, and all sorts of crowns and bridges of his own invention that ran into four-figure dollars, and were evidently going to hang loose in the admiral's mouth. All the while he would talk and inflict his own political views on his clients, which were that the English were both fools and clever knaves. The apparent contradiction did not disturb him in the least and if the Admiral showed any inclination to contradict some amazing insinuation, he would just press the needle a little and manipulate it on the nearest nerve in the tooth, and so silence all opposition. He would talk of the exchange at Vladivostok, and of how easy it was to make money, and when asked how to do it, he would say you only had to turn one currency into another, whether yen, dollars, sterling, or rubles and a vast fortune was assured you, evidently quite irrespective of the order of turnover, or the particular currency, or the amount employed, or the rate at which the transactions were being effected. He would talk all the while, never stopping the whole time the client was there, and then at the finish stick a piece of saturated cotton wool into any hole in any tooth, take no heed of your protests, and tell you to come again any time, any day, when he would keep you waiting for whole hours at a stretch. He would see you out, shouting in the passage in reply to any question you might have put, "'All right, all right,' as he closed the door upon you, and then turned to the next patient. He attended to the admiral's teeth twice in Vladivostok, and then hearing through a third person, that the admiral was not quite satisfied with the finality of his work, he left the coast and joined the admiral on his own initiative at Omsk, in order to evade military service at the base, and now stated that he was a member of the admiral's party. He was followed by Baron Wunderhausen, now a second lieutenant in Kolchak's army, who arrived in Omsk and asked the admiral to take him on as an interpreter. This was conceded the young baron, who said that he was anxious to help, displayed a curious lack of judgment, or if his aim was flattery, a curious ignorance of the art. He held that Russia was a feminine nation, which should be controlled and directed by a masculine nation like England, and that Great Britain should raise, equip, and officer an army of Buriats, Kirghiz, Kalmuks, and other native races in order to conquer Russia. As for himself, the baron wanted to wash his hands of the whole business, to get into the British army, to renounce his Russian nationality, and get a post somewhere in Persia or Mesopotamia. It seemed more and more as one lived longer that to get white Russia on her legs was like trying to get a featherbed to stand on end. Occasionally we would visit the front, and the admiral would interfere in everything. He would look and shake his head the pace and method of extermination would appear to him thoroughly inadequate. We stood behind a gunner who kept on firing at a tree, as such, apparently for no other reason. "'What are you firing at?' the admiral asked. The man pointed at the tree. "'Are there any reds behind?' The man shrugged his shoulders. The question to him seemed immaterial. "'Have you got a telephone there?' the man shook his head. "'But what are you aiming at?' He pointed at the tree. It transpired that four regiments composing the division had gone over to the enemy that very morning. Of the division there remained just fourteen men, and the commander and his divisional headquarters comprising about three hundred officers. We saw the commander in his office and asked him what he thought he would do. He said that he would wait. He thought the men might return. "'Who are you counting on?' said the admiral sarcastically. "'God!' "'Yes, Your Excellency,' sighed the commander. "'We have no one else to count upon.' And the admiral felt shamed. But the men, it seemed, did not return. They ran as fast as their legs would carry them over to the Bolshevik lines, and the Bolsheviks, thinking that they were being attacked by overwhelming numbers, fled in disorder. The Admiral was gloomy. The wind cut us in the face in our rapid drive. Slowly and gradually, afternoon evolved into evening. That Peking and Tianjin news, I broke the silence, seems to be somewhat pro Bolshevik. It's always pro something, the Admiral grunted. He looked out of the window of the car on the vast snow covered plains stretching all around us and brooded darkly. Some people, said he, think snow beautiful. I think it idiotic. Although technically the presence of Nikolai Vasilievich's family on our train was but a temporary measure, yet it was recognized by all, through that deeper human instinct that defies illusion, that there was an element of permanence about it that would give points to the oak-tree. Of course— The admiral could always have cleared his train of the family by subjecting them to a prolonged machine-gun fire. But as with soldiers, diplomats, and politicians, the personal morality of sailors is much above their national morality. Need I say that they remained? The motive of their journey was that Nikolai Vasilievich was perpetually compelled to see some general in some town along the line about his gold mines for his gathering suspicions concerning the integrity of the punitive expedition had now been amply justified. And then, as time went on, the motive, as motives do, dissolved into a habit. But the relations between the Zina-Uncle Kostya wing, and that of Fanny Ivanovna and the three sisters, and, similarly, the relations between Fanny Ivanovna and Magda Nikolaevna, were far from satisfactory at wayside stations and impromptu halts in the fields and glades and valleys, when we all left the train and hastened to take exercise, there had been awkward situations, and when the three sisters had occasion to pass Zina or any of her little sisters, they never failed to put their tongues out at them, presumably as a sign of disapproval of Nikolai Vasilievich's approval of them. We parted with them as we got back to Vladivostok, but they continued coming to our parties, and the rumour spread that Fanny Ivanovna was, as they say, bien vous at the admiral's court. Only once the very haughty wife of an insignificant officer, newly landed at the port, sounded the alarm. A problem has arisen in society. Can we receive a German, or can we not? but the problem, like so many problems, died its death without solution. CHAPTER Seven. IT WAS THE DAY AFTER GENERAL Guida's UNSUCCESSFUL RISING "'They've gone out for a walk with those three American naval officers,' Fanny Ivanovna told me when I called. "'Just the two of us, as usual,' she added somewhat bitterly. kniaz seated in the corner, audibly confirmed her statement as it were by sucking sweets there was an acute scent of eau de cologne in the room how charming i exclaimed bending forward to examine a tiny little jumper that she was knitting oh that's for my godchild who oh the little girl i christened madame olenin's little daughter she's just three weeks old to-day a dear little thing another niece for uncle Kostya. what They do turn them out in that family. Zina has more cousins than any girl alive. Well, said Fanny Ivanovna, the little thing can't help being her cousin. And Madame Olenin is really very nice. What does it matter, after all, if she's her aunt? I respect her all the same, and she did so want me to be the godmother, and the little girl is called Fanny after me. The canary hopping to and fro punctuated the swift movement of her accustomed fingers. "'My dear Andrei Andreitch, she burst out in answer to my question as to when Nikolai Vasilievich would be back, "'there was a time when I knew all about his movements. But that time is over. I feel more and more, as we live longer, that my hold on him is weakening. And I feel this every day it's getting weaker and weaker, and he is slipping away from me.' and I am powerless to stop him. And soon I shall cease to bother altogether. He can stay there all night if he pleases. I've seen Zina lately. She looks quite grown up. Oh, what a headache I have!' She dipped her folded handkerchief into a bowl of eau de cologne and pressed it to her forehead. "'If I hadn't Nina to console me, Oh, you have no idea what a tender, loving heart our Nina has. Nina? Tender? You don't know her. Do you remember that day you arrived here, and I was so anxious to know where she had been? Well, she wouldn't tell me then, because she thought it might upset her plan. Afterwards, she told me. She had been to see her mother. Is that all? Well, it seems her mother wants to make it up with me once, in fact, that we should start a business together. Hats! And won't you?" she thought for a time. "'I don't think I could,' she said at last, after what she said about me." There was a pause of silence, which the canary, though, did nothing to observe. "'But if I do, it will be solely for Nina's sake. Poor child, she so wants to make our peace. "'But doesn't Sonia, as the elder sister, ever take the lead?' "'Sonia!' she laughed. "'Why, look at Sonia. We have a nickname for her—Miss Moon. It suits her admirably. And Sonia is deceitful. Yesterday she lied to me. She said that they had been to see their mother, but, as a matter of fact, Nina told me afterwards that they had gone to a dance on the American cruiser with Mr. Ward and White and Holdcroft.' "'What again?' yes i am very much against it she confided i was furious i said to nina andrei andreitch and your father had nearly lost their lives looking for you everywhere during the firing but all she said was there was no need to they had been on the american flagship on the american flagship my mind could not digest the news yesterday when the firing had begun Nikolai Vasilievich rushed in, panic-stricken, and said that the three sisters had been lost in the upheaval. I had been sitting in the little office with Sir Hugo, who was writing to a Czech colonel of his acquaintance, to apologize for misspelling the colonel's name in a recent letter. This done, Sir Hugo looked through some old minutes of past meetings to see if there was any matter which had not been quite thoroughly thrashed out. He thought he was about to find such a matter when a rifle report echoed sharply through the air and was immediately followed by a multitude of others. We rose and looked out of the window. The projected coup had broken out. There was a continuous rattle of machine-gun fire. The station building and the square before it were being attacked by Gaida's men and defended by British-trained cadets from the Russian Island School. A fearless cadet in British khaki lay on the bridge that traversed the rails, fully exposed to view, and rattled off his machine-gun. Then he lay still. Several bodies were already lying on the square, some dead, others wriggling with pain. Most of the remaining family had been removed to an empty barracks near the station before fighting had become desperate. But it was not till we had launched into the streets that we asked ourselves how we proposed to set about our task. On we walked, looking in at stray houses, inquiring at private flats, but I think at heart we realized that our action was more by way of satisfying our consciences, for we had not a ghost of an idea where to look for them. Returning we perceived the two mothers lamenting bitterly the death of the same children, which they had been quick to take for granted but still not on speaking terms with each other. A window had been knocked out by a stray shell. Firing subsided, and then resumed and grew in intensity as darkness descended upon the town. A drizzling November snow now fell upon the wrangling troops. The station changed hands more than once. Some wounded men had been picked up and dragged into a hospital rigged up in the barracks and were heard moaning and groaning the long night through, while the city shook under fire of the field-guns. The morning unveiled a gruesome picture. The snow that had fallen in the night, and was still falling, now covered the ground and its dead bodies some inches deep. The square, the streets, the yards, the rails, and sundry ditches betrayed them lying in horrid postures, dead or dying. Those that were not dead, when discovered, were finished with the bayonet by the loyal troops, amid unspeakable yells. Then they lay still and stiff in horrible attitudes. Men and women would stoop over them, gaze and wonder. Perhaps there is nothing that brings home so clearly the conviction of the temporary nature of human things as the sight of a dead body. What a moment since had been a human being with a life and purpose of his own was now an object, like a stone or a stick. "'I shall not forget that night,' said Fanny Ivanovna, "'nor what I saw this morning. "'The faces of the prisoners, some almost green from fright "'as they stood with their hands up in the cold grey light of the morning, "'and the babyish face of that Cossack subaltern, a veritable mother's darling as he detailed them into two parties and then that other boy of about the subaltern's own age awfully good-looking who had been hiding in the chimney all night and was forgotten and only remembered as the prisoners had been marched off to the station to be killed then came that terrible rattle of machine-guns from within he was hurried up to the boyish subaltern who motioned in an offhand manner in the direction of the station, and then a soldier ran across with him, the soldier in front, the boy following, hastening to be in time for the firing party. But the firing had just that moment come to an end. The boy fumbled in his pocket and gave some folded paper to the soldier, then vanished into the station. And some moments afterwards, there came those three solitary shots when i entered the station i said i saw piles of dead bodies lying on the steps on which rich red blood trickled down all the way and on top of all that handsome boy with the back of his scalp blown off they were shot at by machine-guns as they were being driven down the stone staircase in the station AND THEIR BOOTS HAD BEEN REMOVED AND APPROPRIATED BY THEIR EXECUTIONERS. ONE MAN, THREE HOURS AFTERWARDS, WAS STILL BREATHING HEAVILY. HE LAY ON THE STEPS, BLEEDING AND COVERED BY OTHER BLEEDING BODIES. ANOTHER MAN IN THE PILE WAS BUT SLIGHTLY HIT. HE LAY ALONE IN THE PILE OF DEAD, WITH A CURIOUS MOB, AND sight seeing SOLDIERY WALKING ABOUT HIM, SHAMMING DEATH. AFTER THREE HOURS HE ROSE AND WALKED AWAY, BUT WAS CAUGHT AND SHOT horrible she said it's shameful the whites killed the reds the reds killed the whites and nobody is any the farther if people would only realize that killing is the first thing they shouldn't do the proposition would appear self-evident but it seems as if the one idea of the kolchakites is bloodshed to suppress bloodshed and that this also happens to be the idea of the bolsheviks and that the Kolkatschites are shocked at it. "'Why can't human beings settle things by conference?' "'They must be human beings for that, Fanny Ivanovna. "'Sir Hugo, surely. Sir Hugo's chief preoccupation at a conference is to commit another allied gentleman into saying yes on any given point, and then, by a series of masterful, elaborate, and elusive thrusts of speech, to commit him into saying no.' and then to point out the contradiction. It is what Sir Hugo calls displaying the good old fighting spirit. His attention is essentially devoted to the careful recording of documents that find their way into our office accidentally, documents which in themselves he regards as inessential and unimportant. And the Admiral hates Sir Hugo's love of detail and exactitude, which seems bent on proving to him very clearly and precisely the uncertainty and vagueness of his own position. She sighed. "'It is a consolation,' said she, "'to think that there are other useless people in the world besides ourselves.' The snow still fell in heaps as I walked home, and it grew markedly colder, and one felt the onset of winter, while prisoners, it was said, were being killed in prison noiselessly out of consideration for the allies in the city end of section 7